Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A-Time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Jack Emmer to the Philosophy Podcast. Jack is a Hall of Famer. He's in actually around four Hall of Fames. Coached at Cortland, WNL, and Army. First coach ever to bring three different programs to the NCAA semifinals. Uh, was the all-time leader in wins in Division I lacrosse and uh, an, an overall legend that I grew up uh, really respecting and glad to know you and glad to have you on the show. Well, it's a pleasure, Jamie. Looking forward to it. Let's um, let's let's go back in time to um, how you actually got your start in the game, where you grew up, and then we'll let it kind of go from there into uh, the playing days and the coaching days. Well, you asked me that question. I could talk for the next uh, hour without you asking a second question. But uh, actually, uh, I was a Long Island guy, uh, football, basketball, baseball player, and uh, went to Rutgers. Didn't play in high school. Back in the day, that wasn't that uncommon. And uh, Rutgers was uh, smart enough not to have spring football at the time. So us football, recruited football players, got an opportunity to play something else. And that was lacrosse in the spring. Assistant football coach was the head lacrosse coach, Bob Naso, and he convinced me to come out. And uh, I, I started playing that way. Uh, you had to play with the freshmen, Back in the day, yeah, you couldn't play varsity as a as a freshman, which was good because I had no skills or understanding of the game and kind of learned it by just playing it that freshman year, and then uh, learned how to play, uh, particularly defensively along the way. I had a little natural skill which helped me, and then after Rutgers, uh, played with the Long Island Athletic Club, played with some really good players that we practiced against and uh, that developed my skills. But I'll tell you, Jamie, uh, I'm on Long Island 
I'm on Jones Beach with a bunch of my Long Island Athletic Club buddies, you know, soaking in the sun. And somebody says to me, do you know that uh, Al Pisano just left Cortland to take the Army job? I said, you're kidding. And I said to my buddy, Jack Salerno, I said, Jack, uh, lend me a quarter. And I went up to the uh, phone booth at the top of the beach, made a collect call to Cortland, told him I was interested in the job. Now, this was August, right? So it was getting late in the uh, yeah. calendar process. Took myself in an interview and got the job. I wasn't really qualified. I'd only been out of school two years, coached high school JV one year, a varsity team uh, the next year. Had a little success, but not much of it in two years. And got that opportunity. I'm not sure that would happen today, but that's how it all started for me. Unusual. Wow. So that was 1970? That was in the summer of 69. Yeah. So did you just miss coaching um, Mike Bones Waldvogel? Did you, did you get to coach him or did you miss him? No, I missed him. I missed Stan Kowalski. I missed uh, Mike Waldvogel. Uh, they, they were very great players. Uh, but went up there to Cortland, coach football in the fall. All the coaches were coaching two sports. Yeah, I had to go head to head with uh, Coach Moran down down the road at Ithaca, running a pretty good Cornell program at the time. Yeah, so good rivalry. But those were very enjoyable years at Cortland. Just three of them. Many of those guys, including Billy Tierney, Ray Rostan, Jack McGetrick, Bert Severins, all went on into the coaching business. Yeah. Oh, well, well, Cortland was the don't mean to forget Paul Wermo, Dave Yurk. How about that? Yeah. Cortland uh, created more legendary coaches uh, than probably any program. And Tony Seaman and Mike Walvogel and some of these guys were, were, were before you too, right? Uh, Walvogel and Kowalski were. Uh, Tony Seaman was out of Cortland. Yep. Mike Sear out of Cortland before yeah. me. Yeah. They had a few. Yeah. Un unreal. And um, – and so you were there for three years, and you went to a semifinal when you were at Cortland? Well, my third year there, uh, we had an incredible group of guys. Uh, Paul Wareham was a leader of that group. Uh, we had uh, uh, four attack men, uh, Paul Wareham, uh, Bert Severins, Johnny Eberins, uh, Kenny McEwen. Uh, we attack-oriented, and we, and we were good. And we were able to beat Cornell, who had won the national championship the year before. Wow. He won. And, uh, you know, uh, so that was a, a big win for us. And when you had the opportunity to go to the NCAA tournament, because it was all one tournament, it was, there was yeah. no Division three, et cetera. And uh, we traveled down to Navy to play the first round. And uh, with crazy Cortland fans following us, we had such a strong support group. And, and most of them were out of their mind, but loud. Yeah. The, we were able to beat Navy in the overtime down there. And then Virginia had to come to Cortland in the semifinals. Wow. The NCAA tournament. And uh, they postponed graduation at Cortland. They moved it later in the day so we could play that game on the field they were going to have graduation on. And there's a school that's got its priorities straight, Jamie. <laughs> Too often. But uh, I outsmarted myself that day. I, uh, I, I tried to play more control across because Virginia was very talented. 
and uh, that wasn't our cup of tea. So we got beat, but it was uh, a great run for Cortland and really established that program up there. Yeah, so great. And then, um, and then you went on to WNL from there. Right, my third year, uh, met my bride there. I uh, at Cortland. Uh, you know, I was uh, a coach. She was a senior student, so it was a very clandestine relationship that uh, you know we tried to keep a secret. But anyway, we got married in '72. Went down to uh, WNL, and I inherited an absolutely. A uh, fantastic uh, group of guys, very skilled, from Dick Slaza, who had left WNL to take the Navy job. Yeah. And uh, and I've stayed in touch with so many of those guys, uh, Hall of Famers, uh, Ted Bauer, Skip Lickfist, Tommy Keegler, Skeet Chadwick, all in the Hall of Fame. Wow. At a WNL. Uh, those are the guys uh, I inherited, and they were ready – uh, to take another step, and I challenged them to do that, and and we got to the semis, uh, couldn't quite get to the final game. We had most heartbreaking loss of my career was losing to Hopkins at Hopkins, uh, eleven to ten, uh, after we had a ten-seven lead in the fourth quarter. So that was a tough one. Wow. They actually should have come to us, but we didn't have uh, that reputation to uh, gain that home game in the semifinals. Uh, we should have been ranked higher than Hopkins at the time. We were undefeated, but uh, that didn't happen. And we lost by one goal, very controversial, uh, a mistake uh, on a part of a couple of the officials. It wound up costing us the game. Uh, the videotape proved that out, but you know, those are the things you got to overcome to be a champion. And uh, so that was a tough one, but uh, Tremendous group, and uh, we stay in touch with many of those guys from Cortland and WNL to this yep. day. It's a lot of years ago now. Yeah, amazing. Um, tell me about how you came up with the idea for the armadillo. I thought you might ask me that question. <laughs> that, that comes up all the time. Amazingly, uh, it was 1982. Mike Pressler was a player on my team mm -hmm. at and uh, we had had a great run at WNL, but we were struggling a little bit. And we had to play Carolina. We had lost to Virginia that year. Carolina whacked Virginia. And Carolina was coming to Lexington. And I had to figure out a way to compete. I found myself in this situation a lot in the latter years of my career, of getting a wrinkle here or there to make us more competitive. But at any rate, uh, I had seen a clip somewhere along the line of somebody doing something similar to what we did in the armadillo, which was give a guy the ball, surround him with the other five guys who locked arms, and the guy with the ball had a goalie stick with a deep pocket. Now, you know all this, Jamie, I'm sure. And uh, so there's no way you figure that you're going to be able to knock the ball out of this guy's stick. And, uh, and we, we did it inside the back line ball, you know, shot out of bounds. You come in, the defenders have to be five yards from the ball, but the uh, teammates could be right with the ball. So all six guys were right there. He stepped in the armadillo and we held the ball. And then uh, Carolina got very frustrated and they fouled us. 
we came out of it, extra man, scored, you know. <laughs> and it got to the fourth quarter, an even game. Uh, but then uh, the officials uh, started making it tough on us. Bobby Sandell, good friend of mine, Al Sadler, very good officials down there in the, in the South. Uh, we would shoot the ball and miss intentionally so we could get in the armadillo off the back line. And uh, they stopped letting us do that. We would shoot it and miss, and they would not call it a shot. So uh, they made it a little difficult for us in the latter stages of the game. And the uh, the game itself wound up being 11-8. to eight. Uh, Sounds like a regular old game, you know. Yeah. But, but we were holding the ball to the maximum degree early on. And when it was 8-8, eight, eight, I made the mistake of uh, – going to the goal and trying to get a lead and then says, and then we'd go back in the armadillo, but we didn't get the lead. And once they got it, you know, yeah. we had to play to play to score. So. Well, that, that was era of Carolina lacrosse was incredible too. I mean, that 82 team won the championship and they were oh, yeah. off the charts. Oh, they, they were great. And uh, they were very, very frustrated that day, as you might imagine, but, but Willie kept his cool, you know, uh, Dave Klaman was uh, not as cool as Willie, let's say. Uh, and uh, Willie and I always laugh about it to this day, but it was uh, it was unusual to say the least. And it certainly was not traditional. And uh, a lot of people accused me of ruining the game, but the NCAA lacrosse committee met the next Monday and outlawed offensive players getting right next to the ball when it came in from out of bounds so you couldn't do the armadillo anymore which was absolutely fine with me you know I didn't want to be responsible for other people doing this and so it was became a one-time thing and here we are 40 years later people still talking about it I'm afraid they're going to put it on my tombstone Jamie I don't want that <laughs> the, the images of Carolina guys like trying to crawl through the legs of the WNL players are yes. just so classic or the official on his back underneath the armadillo looking that we're not withholding the ball from play. <laughs> oh, boy. The, the goalie stick, though, was like that, you know, that's the, that's the topper. I mean, you know, you could have just had a regular stick in there. And maybe, you know, did you ever think about trying to, like, move the armadillo? Well, we knew you could. So you could actually get in front of the net and score? Yes, but you couldn't move it because if they got in your way, it would be a moving pick. Hmm. You know, and uh, that didn't work. But uh, I got a phone ringing in the background here, but uh, we'll take care of that. But a real peculiar thing that happened in that game, Jamie, was we were holding the ball in the armadillo, and UNC was in there hacking away at us with the butt end of their stick, and they broke the rawhide in the goalie stick, and the ball fell out. And it was like, a drop of water on a pane of glass, how it spreads out as soon as it hits. Yeah. Well, that ball hit, and those Carolina players were on it so quickly. Boom, bam, boom. They're down the other end. And remember, the goalie stick was in the armadillo, so our goalie had an attack stick at the other end. You can only have one goalie stick. Yeah. And he makes the save with his attack no stick. No way. <laughs> so that, that was uh, one of the highlights, you might say. All right, so then um... – how did you end up at Army? Well, uh, I had uh, 11 uh, wonderful years at Washington and Lee. Uh, it was 
getting more and more difficult to compete on a division one level at a small school with 1400 all men uh, more and more people were given a scholarship and I, I could feel how difficult it was and uh, the army job opened up and uh, you know I decided to apply for wind up wind up simply getting it and uh, and then Joni and I uh, I sat in a in a vacant field thinking, you know, should I take this job? But uh, it was time to go. And uh, we made the move. And, um, you know, uh, we enjoyed uh, 22 years at, at West Point. That was yeah. terrific for my for my family and for me. Yeah. Well, we yeah. were joking um, before it started. I remember playing my very my very first month of college lacrosse, 1986, we're warming up at Army. It's a night game on like a Friday night. And all of a sudden at our end, the lights went out. And your uh, reaction was like right on time. Yeah. <laughs> we were better, better players than the dark. <laughs> Who won that game? Tell me. 6-5 Army. Oh, good news. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, in 1987, we lost to you guys in like four overtimes at Brown. You remember that one? Incredible game. It was. That was one of the all-time games. I think it was five overtimes, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I remember how rowdy the Brown fans were encircling the field. Yeah, in the football stadium. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was a heck of a contest, yeah. And, and I can't remember who it was, but the defenseman beat the living crap out of my right arm. And I think Jake Reed told me that that was part of the uh, – Part of the uh, game plan, just beat the living crap. And it was muddy, so I couldn't even get away. <laughs> yeah, that was in a scout report, Jenny. Bang on that right arm. <laughs> um, but uh, this was, by the time I was playing, I think, you know, there was only five poles allowed. But, um, you know, when you first got there, and you know, you had the, uh, the old nine-pole, ten-man ride going on the whole platoon. Was that something you invented at, at West Point, or was it something you had done prior to? Uh, no, we hadn't done it uh, prior to. We didn't have enough good defensemen. But at Army, we were loaded with long stick guys. Yeah. We could play defense, and we had lots of defensemen. And so it was one of those things, you know, what will allow us to compete better? And uh, we developed this 10-man ride, Jamie, with nine long sticks. And in, in the day, when the ball went out of bounds, you got a horn. Yeah. So you could always sub. Horn on the end line. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Anywhere it went out of bounds. So you could always sub. We'd sub nine long sticks. And uh, that was the best riding group I've ever been associated with. People could virtually never clear the ball. I mean, we had – but we couldn't pick it up either. You know, we were <laughs> bumble bums trying to pick up the ball, but uh, they couldn't clear it. We – uh, regularly had three or four goals with long sticks and because of that. I remember being in the, uh, up at Syracuse in the, in the, uh, in the semis it was, uh, 84 using these long sticks and they couldn't clear the ball, but we weren't good enough offensively to win the game. Uh, they were a little too good for us, but, uh, but, uh, that was a lot of fun, but it was another thing that wasn't particularly good for the game because nobody wanted to see, all these long sticks hacking on people. Yeah. And then they developed six long sticks and five and then four, which yeah. is great. You know, so uh, we kind of changed the way to play the game a little bit. I, yeah, I well, it's 
you know you're doing something right when they when they make rule changes uh, uh, you know about your what your your skill or your tactics right it's a good right. thing well in 1988 we finally knocked off army and then we didn't play again in 89 my senior year which i i do not know why <laughs> yeah well i gotta be honest with you jamie we weren't hiding from you but i don't know oh. I don't know the reason we didn't play. Can't remember. I know. I can't either. But um, to call you know, Tom and ask him. Yeah, we should get Tom on the call. Um, I uh, I spent a lot of time with Jake Reed over the years, and he told me so many great stories about his times uh, back uh, coaching for you. And you've you've had so many great assistants. Uh, maybe we can just uh, you can reflect on some of those guys. You know, Cortland WNL and Army, and, and sort of these guys that you that were in the trenches with you, who you learned from, and who've been such great friends and, and great mentors for kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, back at, uh, back at Cortland, Chuck Wynn is my uh, best buddy. Uh, I coached the team by myself my first year. That's the way it was in 1970. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we hired Chuck Winters as my assistant there in 71, 72, and, and he was terrific. Uh, and then when I left, he got the, uh, the head lacrosse job and wind up being associate athletic director at, at Cortland and then came down to Army as associate athletic director, interestingly enough, to huh. join me and then got the Gettysburg AD job. And Chuck uh, was a tremendous administrator, very thorough guy. And then at uh, Army in my uh, very first year, uh, I brought in Mike Pressler. Yep who was a one-year head coach at VMI at the oh. time, started their program. And uh, I brought him up there with Bert Severins. I don't know if you remember Bert. I remember him. He played for, for me at Cortland, and he's still coaching down in Georgia at a little school in Georgia, collegiate school in Georgia. And, uh, you know, that uh, they did a, a good job for me there. Uh, Chuck O'Connell was my longtime assistant at WNL. He was an offensive guy, uh, very fundamental, like we were talking about before. Yeah. Very uh, traditional out of St. Paul's, you know, and there was a way to uh, do things that the Baltimoreans uh, did. And uh, But uh, he gave me good perspective, and he uh, pretty much ran our offense, although she is at, at WNL. And then, uh, and then along the way, uh, you know, uh, at Army, we uh, we hired some great guys. I don't know if you remember a guy named Sean Smith, and then he went to Hofstra and Stony yep. Brook, and uh, uh, Jake Reed worked with us for a while. Uh, Mac DeAnge was my longtime assistant. Yep. He came from Geneseo State. Uh, Mac was terrific. And uh, Joe uh, Richie Mead coached with us, and we yep. helped him get the Navy job. Yeah. Helped the helped the guy get the navy job, and then he came back and beat our butt a number of years. Yeah, not cool. Richie did a great job at Navy, and uh, and I hired uh, Joe Alberici. I always tell Joe I hired him from the hinterlands. He was at Oneonta State, a graduate of Alfred. How many great lacrosse players have come out of Alfred? Uh, but oh, wow. uh, I had worked with Joe at a camp, and I uh, was very impressed with him. And he was from Auburn, New York, which happens to be the hometown of my wife. And uh, so we knew Joe and uh, I hired him. And then when I finally left, 
he was my recommendation to become the next head coach. And they don't always listen to the, the party coach, you know, but they did that time. And Joe's done an absolutely uh, wonderful uh -huh. job. Yeah. Yeah. What a great person. And all these guys that you've been around have been so great. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the nineties um, because we got to coach against each other when I was the assistant for Mike Waldvogel at Yale. And you I know. remember we, I remember you came to scout, you were allowed to live scout back then and you came to scout a Yale game and I was up in the press box after and I'm like, huh, what's this uh, briefcase? And I look and I was like, oh my gosh, this is coach Emmer's briefcase. You remember that? You left your briefcase and you oh, called. Yes. You had to drive back. You're like, dude, don't look in there, by the way. Because all your, you know, all the notes, you were playing, all, you were playing uh, Yale like the next week. I never recovered all that stuff you took out of that brief. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Jamie here. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the content in my Philacrosophy podcast, my Inside the Eight podcast, or my a lacrosse weekend blogs, I would encourage you to check out the store at jamesfreesports.com. I've created awesome content for coaches, players, and parents in both men's and women's lacrosse. For coaches, the coaches training program. It's, it's a combination of cutting edge and practical. We have division one men's and women's coaches all the way down to high school, JV, and youth. For players, I've created JM3 player academies which are designed to teach every variation of every skill for boys and girls across. And for parents, I've created a JM3 recruiting portal where I've taken all of the content from my blogs, my podcasts, from webinars and other interviews and pooled all of this information in one place where parents can get access to incredible content and insights from the very coaches that you're hoping to play for. That's right. I remember that now. I hadn't remembered it till you just mentioned it. Yeah. But uh, we had some great contests with Yale, didn't we? They were always yeah. one-goal games. And then, yeah, they uh, really were. And who is the great, great, great player at Yale? Scored 10 goals on us. John Reese. Oh, my God. We always prided ourselves on being able to defend one guy pretty well, you know. Not John mm -hmm. Reese. 10 goals. 10 goals. And he, he had – that was the year before I got there, actually, in 1990 when uh, okay. Bones took him to the Final Four. But, yeah, that guy was uh, kind of a freak. They had a really, really good uh, group of, of talents. And, and it's, we had a really uh, pretty good 92 team also. And I think we just – we did have great contests, though, and it was always a lot of fun. And then I actually um, got it to uh, suffer a couple of losses to you as uh, a young head coach when I was at the University of Denver coming down to play in early March on the river, so-called – uh, showed no mercy, but, you know, those were uh, as part of the development, right? We used to bring uh, those teams into uh, Shea Stadium, it was called, down at the river. And it was always a little chilly and a little windy. Uh, we probably should have been up at Mikey Stadium, which, you know, we wound up making that transition. Uh, but uh, I remember Denver in the early days, you know, and certainly, uh, you know, you got the program started and it's yeah. done well. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so give me your opinion on the state of the game. And have you been watching much uh, Division One lacrosse, much PLL lacrosse, much MLL? Uh, what's, your, what's your sort of take on things these days? Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been watching probably uh, not as much uh, PLL uh, recently as initially. But, uh, you know, I think uh, – you know, certain rules they've used to enhance the speed of the game, uh, giving them a clearing clock, uh, 
and so forth has helped it cut down on all the special substitution to a degree. Yeah. Uh, but I'm still critical, Jamie, and I'm, uh, I'm kind of uh, very much in the minority here that I think they should do away with the face-off in the game of lacrosse. And the, the traditional face-off people have a real hard time with that. But I see lacrosse uh, going like basketball. You score, you take the ball out on the back line, and you go. No horn. Uh, I think it would be uh, a speed up in the game that would be, you know, phenomenal. Uh, I kind of equate it, and I'm sure you've heard this, back in the early days of basketball, early 1900s, yep. they would score a bucket and they'd have a jump ball. Yep. After every bucket in basketball. And then somebody said, well, why don't we just take the ball out? And there were probably those that said, oh, that jump ball, that's a traditional part of the game. You don't want to change that. Uh, and I, I see lacrosse being, uh, I see the face-off kind of slowing it down. It's hard to officiate. There's a lot of cheating that goes on. Uh, I don't think people want to watch two sumo wrestlers out there over a, scurrying over a ball for 30 seconds. So, but it doesn't appear like uh, that's going to happen. However, Jamie, if you remember, in 1980, yeah. We did away with the face-off. Yeah. People forget that. Yeah. I happen to be on the NCAA Rules Committee. I spent a lot of time as the USILA Rules Chairman, which gave me an opportunity to be on the uh, NCAA Rules Committee. And we did away with the face-off. But the mistake we made, and it influenced the game greatly in 1980, was we put the ball back in play at the midline. Yeah. That was a mistake. In hindsight, we, we didn't foresee what happened. And what happened was people sent long sticks out on the defensive midfield because the ball was being coming back in at the midline. And it gave them an opportunity to sub better defensive people and long, no limit on long sticks. And so that was not the intent of it. We should have taken the ball out on the back line with no horn, just pick it up and go like I talked about a, yeah. a and uh, I think that would have worked, but it didn't work in 1980. And one year later, uh, they back back in. When the coaches voted on it, Jamie, it was like 52 to 51 in favor of doing away with the faceoff. Not exactly a mandate. Mm -hmm. The NCA committee said, "Okay, let's do it," and uh, we did it for one year. It's kind of been a forgotten thing, right? I always. I always remember it because I went to Brown and Brown had one of those guys that could, uh, that could surgically remove the ball from a person's stick. I think his name was Mark Farnham. And he used to just yeah. like, they would shut off everybody and he just was unbelievable at, at putting the ball on the ground. A defenseman Farnham. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought you're talking about a face-off guy. No, Farnham. No, no. Farnham was a defenseman that would match it up and like Dom would lock everybody off. Or actually it was Dom was the defense coordinator then. It was Cliff Stevenson back then. Yes. And, uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on the uh, on the shot clock um, in in college cross? Yes, uh, I wasn't. Uh, I got to admit, a, a big proponent of it, but uh, I like it. You know, I, I think it's good now. It's uh, it's created offense. It's created flow to the game. Yep. So it's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it's so much better as a fan. 
I mean, I used to watch games and be fast forwarding, you know, for minutes on end because people would just throw it around in circles until they were subbing and they weren't even really doing anything. And then, you know, it was much better spectator game. Yeah, it is. And a better game for the players. No doubt. Definitely. And it's also, it's amazing because you, when you, when people would think about, should we do a shot clock or not? Cause it's been talked about for years. Right. And, and it was, it's like a defensive rule, right. It gives a defensive advantage in theory with less time. Yeah. Uh, but, but what we didn't realize was they weren't really trying to score so much that, that the scores efficiencies are still pretty darn high. And the scores now, you got to be able to win a game 1918 or 2019. Even if you have, you know, you think of yourself as a, a team that can play some defense, you're just not going to stop these teams at times and you better be able to score. Right. And there was real concern when you talked about the shot clock that uh, defensive teams are just going to go to zone to slow things down so you couldn't get a good shot off in, in you know, limited amount of time. Uh, and some teams have done that, but yeah. it just, forces offenses to figure it out, which is good. It used to be that 9-8 uh, was like, you know, the magic number for winning a game. Remember, 9-8, you know, there's so many big games that you won or lost, 9-8. And uh, really, it's probably more like 14-13 now. Yeah. Right? yeah, That is a more fun game. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And I love defense as much as the next guy, but I still think it's more fun to, like, play defense against people that are trying to score. <laughs> Instead of playing defense against people that are actually not trying to score for a while. to get the ball away from them because they're not going to the goal. Right. Speaking right. of uh, excitement, though, um, I had the uh, privilege of doing an ESPNU game with you. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, Army at Syracuse. Oh, baby. What, what a, a game, huh? What a day. I tell that story a lot, Jamie, because you and I were up in the booth having a good time. And uh, Army was giving Syracuse all they could handle. Uh, but I was trying to be very professional. And you were. Though it was impossible for me not to be a little bit of a cheerleader for the Army team. But when there was a dead ball, I'd be leaning out of the window, cheering on all the Army parents. And then when we got back live, I was very professional again. We're very professional, but um, if there was a camera on you, there was a lot of silent fist pumping going on, you know, right when uh, Army would make a save or score a goal. And what, what, a, what an exciting game. Remind me how that game actually ended. Um, I can't remember the play. Well, it ended with a kid named Devin Lynch, who was from Skinny Atlas, where I had retired to and coached after I left West Point and introduced Devin Lynch to go to West Point, much to the chagrin of his mother. Uh, she loves me now, but she didn't love me then. <laughs> Devin Lynch winds up being the captain of the Army team and scores the winning goal in overtime to beat Syracuse. Uh, that was kind of special. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. What a, what a game. First round games. It was the Sunday night game. I mean, Syracuse was always the Sunday night game. It was the Sunday night game. Yeah. And then poor kids had to jump in the bus and get home about four in the morning, but they didn't mind. No, not, not, not that day. Yeah. So yeah, that was fun. That was special. Um, before we uh, jumped on the, the podcast officially, um, we were just sort of shooting the breeze about, about coaching and, and about development and about structure. And I showed you some of those videos from, from this past summer. And I just thought an interesting topic would be just your, you know, looking back at your own evolution as a coach, um, you know, and the evolution of coaching in general from a more 
you know, the way we would have grown up with less structure to now where there's a lot of structure. And I would just like to have you uh, give your opinions on how to find that balance and where do you think coaches should search for that and look for that and think about it? That's a pretty broad question, Jamie. And I think uh, my answer was always to evaluate what you had uh, and try to take advantage of the skills of your players and adapt your program that way. Uh, there were times when we uh, uh, ran and gunned, and there were times when we slowed it down. Uh, there were times when we uh, used a 10-man ride and nine long sticks. Uh, and there were times we played a lot of zone because we, we weren't uh, particularly good with the short sticks on defense, but we, we had a lot of good long sticks. And Army playing zone is uh, kind of uncommon. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that's what it came down to. I always found myself uh, looking at what we had and uh, putting in a wrinkle or two in what we wanted to do based on our skills, yeah. which reminds me uh, of an interesting situation. And I haven't seen it since, Jamie, where we had a starting goalie uh, who is a right-handed who is captain of our team. We had a pretty good freshman goalie named Alan, Adam Fullerton, mm -hmm. being a backup goalie for the USA team that went over to Manchester in 2010. But uh, I said to Matty Derrick, who was our captain and starting goalie, he was a right-hander and Adam was a left-hander. I said, Matty, I wouldn't do this without your permission as the starting goalie because I know confidence is it's all about confidence in a goal. Uh, but uh, on man down, I'd like to have our man down team have their own goalie. In this case, the freshman left-hander. And uh, Matty Derrick, he says, okay, coach, I go along with it. So we had, when we had a foul, we subbed the goalie along with the man down team, which is, it turned out to be a great thing because Matty Derrick, unfortunately, busted his thumb halfway through the season like goalies did in those days. And uh, our backup guy had already had quite a bit of an experience playing with the man down team. And uh, he developed into a heck of a goalie. But uh, that was very unusual. And then shooters had to adapt to an extra man. We got a lefty in there now instead of a righty. It worked out great. Unusual. Yeah. yeah. Unusual. yeah. I, that, I did that in 2006. We had a we had a lefty freshman, really athletic. You know, we liked to pressure a lot back then. In 2006, we John Torpy was my uh, defense coordinator, now the head coach at uh, High Point, and we did the same thing with a a freshman goalie. Um, and Quint killed us on the broadcast when we were playing at UMBC, like the dumbest thing ever. Of course, he's a goalie, right? So you know, he, he does. You know, he yeah, he's he would have permitted a sub to come in for him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But. Cool. Uh, it's called innovation, Jamie. Some exactly. people are more receptive to that than others. That's yeah. right. You can't be afraid. No. And we weren't afraid. We had a situation, uh, Jamie, let me digress just for a minute, talking about these kind of things. I had two first-team All-American defensemen playing for me at Washington Lee, Tommy Kegler 
and Rob Lindsay. And they were very different. Kegler was a good defender, but he was a great stick man, you know, and he was on two USA teams, as it turned out. Robbie Lindsay could hardly catch the ball, but he was a great one-on-one defender. Nobody could beat him. And then we had Charlie Brown in the goal. Charlie Brown had been a wishbone quarterback at Ward Melville, great runner, athlete, and he's a goalie. I said, okay, when the ball goes out of bounds, we're going to red dog. Is what oh, we yeah. Both of these defensemen would cover the ball. Charlie would play whomever, the guy closest to the crease, but then they took him wherever. And we did that entire games. Every time they shot the ball, it went out of bounds. We would double the ball and, and crazy thing, but it was so disruptive. Yeah. To, uh, a team's offense. They didn't want to shoot it after a while, you know? Oh. That was the skills we had. We had two great defensemen and never got beat. Frank Urso couldn't beat them. We did it against Maryland. They couldn't beat them. And uh, Charlie was unafraid. You know, he, he went out and guarded guys to the midfield line. He was a goalie. So uh, that was a lot of fun, unusual, but it yeah. was effective. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find over the years that when you could dial up the pressure, it would make a huge difference in your ability to win, win those 50-50 ball games? Uh, defensively, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we did, uh, we did that. We had athletics, uh, athletes on defense and we pushed out. We, uh, we made people throw, uh, cross field passes, you know, through the, through the defense. Uh, we made them take chances and we got, we got beat occasionally. Uh, we had a man down defense, uh, one time that, uh, uh, on a fire call, everybody would rotate as hard as they could on man down defense. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, Dom yep. uh, finally beat that thing, but uh, it, gave him, it gave him some nightmares. But we would just do it occasionally. And the man up team was always surprised by it. They couldn't run their pattern or whatever yep. they wanted to do. And uh, we had athletes and we could get away with it. So that was fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people are afraid to pressure. Um, but uh, if you commit to it, it might be one of the biggest ways to to elevate your program. And for us, like at Denver, we went from being kind of a 20, top 25 team to having a couple top 12 finishes when we cranked up the pressure. And it seemed kind of crazy, but the other team can't can't deal with it either. Like they, they'll beat it early, but right. then but then as soon as they start trying to win a game, and not beat it, they start turning it over like crazy. And um, you, know. you got to like it. And like anything, you got to make a commitment to it. You That's can't right. be half-hearted about it. Now, if you had Mark Farnham and he could go out and play yeah. a guy and not get beat, and then you take the two adjacent guys away, now that guy with the ball can't beat his man, but he's got to throw the ball all the way across the formation. You know, it's just meant for turnovers. Yeah. It is. truly is. And you know, if you pressure. You, you can shut off both adjacents, but as soon as they pick a direction, you don't really have to shut off the backside adjacent, and you can actually make it seem like you're packed in and pressuring at the same time. But you said, you said it, though. It's commitment. Yeah, you, you have to just not be afraid and go for it. Right. Yeah, absolutely right. Yep. I earlier in the podcast, and we watched those videos that I showed you of all the boys and girls playing pickup games, which were sort of a no-equipment version of box lacrosse. And we were both kind of getting mesmerized by the, the passing and the skills and the creativity. 
And you made a comment about how in youth lacrosse, when you go watch sometimes, you'll, you'll hear coaches being almost, you know, being so vocal that they were actually, you know, coaching the kids on their every move. Yeah, let me take it from there, Jamie. It, 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 there's no doubt, particularly on the youth level where kids have to react to situations and learn from their mistakes but not be uh, worried about uh, somebody that's directing them every step of the way. Uh, you can't play the game that way. You've got to be fluent. You've got to be reactive. And you're going to be a better player in the, in the long run. Uh, I watch my uh, two grandsons, and uh, I don't see them smiling a, a lot when they, when they play in this superstructure, you know, when it's not a flow, when it's not creative, and they can make things happen. And they're worried about whether they should step to the left or step to the right or throw the ball down the side or across the top. Uh, you know, there's, uh, it's a sport where you coach them up during the week you know, you coach them up during the week, but they've got to be able to play instinctively uh, on the weekend in, in the games. And you, you've got to build that into your practice. There's, there's no doubt about that. It, it can't be strictly running plays, although I've had teams where I run a lot of plays uh, based on who we were, but uh, that's not the way to play this game. Well, and it, it may be a way to win games. It's just not a great way to develop players. And I think that that's the, the fine line that everybody has to figure out. Yeah, I'm with you 100% on that. No doubt. Yeah, watch that video that you just showed me, little box across on a tennis court. Fantastic. Girls throwing the ball behind the back, you know, uh, accurately, <laughs> getting it there quicker, and uh, letting the uh, person that's receiving it, seeing it coming uh, better you know, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It's really fun stuff. Um, coach. So are you getting a chance to do any, uh, coaching or are you doing any telecasts or what's your involvement in lacrosse these days besides being a, a fan of your grandson? Yeah. Well, I've re I really enjoyed uh, a few years working for ESPNU. Uh, I was a color guy and, uh, to me that was easy. You know, you just commented on what, what you saw, some people that were the play-by-play -play guys were easier to work with than others. You know, some, yeah. some people dominated the broadcast and you didn't have uh, much of an opportunity to say anything. But uh, I enjoyed that. But uh, then they stopped calling me ESPN for whatever reason. They probably didn't like that Long Island accent of mine, which I still haven't gotten rid of. Uh, I but... like <laughs> <laughs> uh, Since then, uh, Jamie, I've been uh, chairing the Tawarton Committee. Uh -huh. you know, uh, so I've stayed in touch uh, with all the top coaches. We have two coaches from every league uh, on the committee, so we canvass all the uh, the players, and we're aware of uh, you know who should be getting consideration for the Tawarton Award. So that's a very professional group that we talk regularly during the season, except this last season, which ended right. halfway through it. Um, and I've been involved with. Uh, an assistant, uh, outstanding assistant coach of the year committee. Uh, we established that award, uh, well, maybe 15 years ago now to award the top assistant coaches, which is. That was the J it's the Jay Gallagher award, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that was around, I, I think I might've gotten that one in like 1997. So it's been around. 
Yeah, well, STX was given a, a Jake uh, Gallagher Award for a while, but uh, we were always calling this award just the Outstanding Assistant Coach Award, but recently uh, named it after Jay Gallagher. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Well, it was a, I, got, I received a, uh, a fly fishing tackle box because Jay Gallagher was yeah. a, a Cornell lacrosse player and coach and a great guy who uh, died much too young of cancer, but was a huge fly fisherman. Yeah, I knew Jay well. Yep. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. And is uh, Walt Gallagher, what a great guy. I remember uh, being invited by his dad to uh, go speak at uh, his lacrosse breakfast on Cape Cod back in the day. And so there's some uh, some great Walt memories for the Gallagher family, great lacrosse great family. Timer. Philosophical about the game of lacrosse, Walter. Yes. For sure. Um, but, uh, well, Coach, um, all of your uh, wisdom and insights and stories and service uh, to the game um, are uh, incredible. I'm so glad you uh, joined me on this podcast. Well, my pleasure. We, we could have talked about a lot more things too, Jamie, but uh, hopefully uh, whoever does listen in enjoys a little bit of history. For sure. It's it, history now. It is. And it's, it's important. I've been 15 years now. They're going fast. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, let's definitely uh, catch up and talk lacrosse again sometime, and uh, I'll see you a few more videos to look at. All right. Appreciate you thinking of me, Jamie. All right, Coach. Take care.